Imagination and Homeschooling. A welcome to another look into the life and message of Elizabeth Elliot. She called us to live to a higher standard each day, to not be satisfied with throwing a little religion into our lives, a shallow substitute of what God wants us to have. As the series continues in the coming weeks, we'll hear from family, friends, and others who were influenced by Elizabeth's life and message. Today we wrap up a very short series that we began last week, Planning for Family Life. We have a special guest, Valerie Elliott Shepherd, Elizabeth's daughter. We'll be hearing from friend Jean Hamilton as uh, she talks about Elizabeth's prayer for her daughter. And also, uh, Kathy Rigg, the president of the Elizabeth Elliott Foundation, talks about a special parenting book that's later on. First, though, part three of Planning for Family Life. Are we dampening our kids' natural curiosity in our efforts to raise them well? As you think about letting children be children. Jesus said, Come to me, all you who are tired and overburdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. This is your friend, Elizabeth Elliot talking with my daughter today, Valerie Shepherd. We've been talking about children. She is the mother of six, expecting number seven in December. And I'd like for us to talk today a little bit about children and responsibilities, Val. I have a letter here that asks the question, should we let children be children? Because it seems to be the society's norm or the way of thinking of treating children in ways that actually rob them of the very best that childhood means. In other words, society is giving more and more entertainment to children that is adult planned, and that is spoiling children, I believe. This lady says, I had always thought letting children be children to mean preserving their innocence, wonder, and enthusiasm. Yet today we begin when they're babies to dull that fresh eagerness with passive, adult-contrived entertainment. I had thought it meant encouraging and channeling their fertile imaginations, but how soon we stamp them out and replace them with the vain imaginings of someone else who is highly paid to do so. Letting a child be a child, I thought, meant being a good steward of his or her dependency, his trusting, teachable spirit, and using that opportunity to teach train, discipline, work side by side with him. Today, don't you think we've thrown out God's plan for a parent-child apprenticeship experience, which blends the best of what it is to be a parent with the best of what it is to be a child? Maybe in a similar way that a good marriage blends the best of what it is to be a man with the best of what it is to be a woman. And in its place, left our children with any of a wide variety of high-tech babysitters that are experts on how to wrap the packages of things children need but don't put anything worthwhile in the box. Well, I really agree that um, society is trying to find more and more ways to entertain children. I was just talking to a grandmother this week who was crying because she was going to have to take care of her granddaughter, who's four years old, who is a brat, she said, because she is entertained all the time. And the grandmother's daughter-in-law had, had said, you'll need to take her to Disneyland because she'll be bored at your house. 
And so the grandmother was crying because she said, I don't think I have the strength to last all day through Disneyland and keep control of her. She said, I have to be really firm with her or she'll run away from me. And I just felt so sorry for her because the mother of this four-year-old just finds everything and anything to try to keep her child occupied without actually giving her one-on-one quiet training and, and teaching. Is this an only child? It's actually one of two. So the mother is just desperately trying to drum up things all the time. Right. Uh-huh. And if this is true uh, with mothers, it's it's even worse in daycare centers, isn't right. it? Talk about highly paid mm-hmm. experts and mm-hmm. constant adult input, and the children are regimented to mm-hmm. all do, you know, now we're all going to crayon or we're all going to do sandbox. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Uh, I'm sure that I'm going to get 10 letters from people saying, oh, no, I know baby care centers where they don't do that, and each little individual may choose his or her own form of occupation. <laughs> well, that may be true, too, and that's chaos. Mm-hmm. But um, I think that's, a, that's an excellent letter. Mm-hmm. Does she have something else you wanted to read? Well, this business of indulging our children, she says, we've backed ourselves into a corner by indulging the self-gratifying tendencies of children. Of course, they are selfish, while at the same time perverting their play instinct with passive entertainment. For example, watching TV is definitely passive entertainment. Now, it seems as though we keep making the self-fulfilling prophecy that children won't swallow anything that's good for them, whether it's work, good books, or music, or spiritual truth, unless it's first jazzed up, dressed up, candy-coated, degerminated, or otherwise disguised. And my first thought is I think of um, stories from the Bible that are watered down and also made into, quote, relevant stories where the child is, an, is a modern-day child. Um, instead of telling the simple biblical story, just straight from the Bible, whether we read it or just tell the story just as it happened, I think children need to hear it as simply and as clearly as possible without the extra jazzing up and dressing up. Okay, so letting children be children, how do you do that, Val? Well, I don't entertain my children a lot, um, mainly because I don't have time to do it, but I really believe that children are more contented with fewer toys than they are with more toys. So over the years, we've gotten, almost every year, we've gotten rid of more and more things and seen that the the younger children, the children under five, play perfectly happily with very, very few things, with their imaginations is what they're playing with. And uh, I, I also believe that children, no matter what, age, as soon as a toddler is toddling about, can be taught to do one or two small responsibilities. And as they get older, they get to do more and more responsibilities. And so from the time a child is maybe 18 months old, 16 months old, they can start setting the table, they can start clearing the table, they can start putting things away from a dishwasher, they can empty waste baskets. They from can 16 or 18 months. I would, I would think so, yeah. I'm uh-huh. sure that people are gasping, Val, just absolutely <laughs> gasping. Uh, back to this business of having simple toys, I think mm-hmm. some of our listeners have no idea that you grew up with jungle Indians mm-hmm. to the age of eight. Um, can you tell us what your toys were? I don't remember that I had more than a doll from the States, um, but I didn't even play with the doll that much. I played with sticks and... 
making little huts with sticks and leaves, and I played with building a little fire um, and pretending like I was a mother and cooking over this little fire. I played in the river a lot. We played, we often caught small fish with our hands and then cooked them in our little fires. We just had endless hours of imaginative play, but no toys. No toys at all. And the Indian children had no idea of toys. Tell your uh, audience, Val, these people that are listening so kindly to us today, about that hour in the afternoon, speaking of children having to entertain themselves. Well, I really believe that there should be a quiet time for everybody after lunch. In fact, I read of a mother that still does this with her teenagers, and the daughter was thanking her mother for always having that quiet time because she loved to have special time every day to be able to read. And so if a child can't read yet, I believe they can have several books and they can just sit and look at them for an hour if they're not sleeping. I believe in making children, trying to make children take a nap at least until the age of three. My daughter that's two and a half now some days takes naps and some days doesn't, but I still leave her alone for at least an hour and a half where she plays and talks to herself and sings and she's usually in her crib sometimes she's on my bed but she's on her own for a while it it also helps me of course every mother wants to have quiet time and i take a nap i usually take a 10 to 20 minute nap and then i do whatever other reading or whatever other thing that's in my room that i need to do i don't i don't usually go down and do laundry or cleaning during that time but aren't they constantly getting up and coming into your room and saying, Mama, is it, is it time up yet? Uh, can we get up now? Uh, I don't know what to do. No, I usually I start out with saying, you must not leave your room until the timer rings. I often have a timer. Or I say, you must not leave your room until I come and tell you that quiet time's over with. And they obey, but they have to get spankings up until they understand that they're not allowed to leave their room. And if a mother said to you, well, my two-year-old, he would never, he wouldn't stay there for five minutes. Well, I'd say you're probably not disciplining him strongly enough and being clear with what you expect. How do you get across one simple message like that to a, shall we say, 18-month-old? Well, I remember with mine just looking at them straight in the eye and saying, you must not get off the bed if you get off the bed, mommy will come spank you, and or you must not open the door. You must stay in here. If you come out, unless it's to go to the bathroom, and usually they're not potty trained at that time, if you come out, mommy will have to spank, and they they stay in. Of course, they've gotten spanked, and then they've had to stay in after that. They get spanked the first time they disobey? Yes. They get uh-huh. spanked the first time. Uh-huh. So... They get the message that mama is serious. And I mean what I say. I mean exactly what I say. And I have had young mothers ask me, how in the world can you make a two-year-old obey? I've tried to say that I think the basic, the most important principle is letting the child know that you are dead serious. Mm -hmm. And -hmm. if you've never been dead serious before and you've made a habit of yelling and raising your voice Mm -hmm. and repeating the command 25 times, then they say, well, isn't it too late? And then I say, no. no. I would say, go home, or if you're already home in your kitchen listening to the, this radio program, you could say to Susie, I have just 
learn something. Mm -hmm. And we are going to do it differently Mm -hmm. from now on and look Susie straight in the eye and say, from now on, when mama speaks or when I speak to you, I expect you to obey me. Mm -hmm. And if you don't obey me, you will get a spanking. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yes, I've had to do that, uh, not so much with direct disobedience as with disrespect, when I've allowed disrespectfulness to come out of their mouths and I've ignored it or not even realized that it was disrespect. I've had to go back to them and say, look, I've allowed some of this to go on without realizing it, and I want to ask your forgiveness. Thanks so much, Val, for being with us today. Gateway to Joy 48, part three in a four-part look at planning for family life with Valerie Elliott Shepard. Well, I mentioned we'd hear from Jean Hamilton, a friend of Elizabeth, as she talks about Elizabeth praying for her daughter. I had lost my husband, and then less than three years later, my, my daughter had gotten killed in an accident with her basketball team in college. And my other daughter was in a mess. You know, she just was trying to cover up all her all her mess with anything she'd get her hands on. And I, I, I was visiting Elizabeth, and uh, I remember at her breakfast nook where they ate her praying for my daughter. Her name is Joni, and she prayed for her right there. And that was very impactful to me. I, I consider her a mentor from afar, you know, a Titus II mentor from the things that she wrote, you know, Path Through Suffering and the book on loneliness. And uh, we're, you know, we're very, you know, I, I just, you know, and, and she talked about suffering so much. So, and she suffered a lot. And so you could really relate. That was Jean Hamilton, a friend of Elizabeth. Later, we'll hear from Kathy Rieg, the president of the Elizabeth Elliott Foundation, and a special parenting book. Uh, Stay tuned for that. Right now, a look at homeschooling as we wrap up this short series, Planning for Family Life. What was it that Walt and Valerie saw in one of their children that led them to be concerned about the school that he was attending? A look at homeschooling, Gateway to Joy 49. This is your friend, Elizabeth Elliott, talking again today with my daughter, Valerie Shepard, from California. We've been talking about children and specifically about the way Valerie is raising her, so far, six children. And today, Val, I'd love to hear about this homeschooling thing. Well, we started with reading the Moore books, Homegrown Kids and Homestyle Teaching, Then we visited a family that we didn't even know that were homeschooling, and they're the ones that convinced us it was the thing we ought to do, too. We also started because our oldest son had been in kindergarten and first grade, and we could see that he was withdrawing from us and depending more and more on his peers for happiness, and we didn't like that. So we took him out at the beginning of second grade, and we've been homeschooling for, I think, six years now. I'm very happy to homeschool. I um, would even be willing to homeschool all the way through high school, although we have taken it one year at a time, asking God to show us what's the right thing for each year. And uh, our oldest now is going to be going to be a freshman in public school this fall, although I would still prefer to homeschool him. Uh, I know my own limitations, and I know that I would not, probably not be able to give him as much attention as he might need 
in uh, teaching certain subjects and also because he has a certain goal in mind of where he wants to go. Um, his father believes that he needs to be in a high school where he'll be able to participate in a lot of activities and sports. Anyway, we're going to homeschool all of our children at least through the eighth grade, we think now. And I really believe in the more philosophy of um, better late than early, not pushing too much academics on young minds that whose eyes have not yet developed fully and who haven't developed their reasoning fully. Usually the reasoning develops between the ages of 8 and 12. So with my 7-year-old, homeschooling is pretty easy. I, I spend a, maybe 15 to 20 minutes teaching him phonics and learning to read and then maybe another 20 minutes where he's doing some simple math and then I try to have just a reading time out loud to him and then uh, once or twice a week maybe do a science experiment where he's doing something with his hands and watching something happen which he thoroughly enjoys. My five-year-old will be kindergarten age this fall. I don't plan to do a whole lot with her except the reading out loud and teaching the sounds of the letters and letting her cut and color like she enjoys doing. You mentioned not pushing them too much, and I have always regretted my ignorance about things like that because, as you remember, Val, you were homeschooled for the first three years, mm -hmm. and I thought since we lived in the jungle and in a very primitive situation, actually we lived in a house with no walls and no floors and no furniture, when we started that, uh, I thought, why bother with kindergarten? You had all the play play school that you needed with your Indian friends, and there weren't any friends except Indian friends, were there? Mm -hmm. And there was the river there, and there were the forests and wonderful activities to keep you busy all day. So I thought, I'm not going to fool with kindergarten. We'll just start with first grade. Well, I started first grade when I was five years old. My birthday is in December, so I was six within a couple months, three months. Your birthday's not till February. Well, what I had no idea of then and I think what really happened was that I ruined your eyes by teaching you to read at the age of five. And we didn't know until you were in the fourth grade that you were badly nearsighted mm -hmm. and will have to wear contacts for the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. Now, we can't be positive that that's the reason that it happened, but there have been studies, haven't there, yes, that indicate there. that this can happen if you teach your children to read, if they have to do any close work before what age? Probably before the age of eight, especially with boys. But it's not a guarantee that they're going to become nearsighted if you make them do close work. It's just that there have been studies done that many children have become nearsighted because they've been pushed to read too early. With my, my children, I've tried to teach them to read around the age of six. And if they didn't seem ready or if they didn't seem to be able to concentrate on it, I just left it for a few months and, tr and picked it up again later. So um, I'm, not, I'm not at all saying that you shouldn't do some close work when they're five or six, but it's not something that you have to, that where the public schools teach them to read at five and six, you don't have to do exactly what the public schools are doing. Now, as I remember, your middle child, Jim, who is now seven, seven. Mm -hmm. he was the, the most articulate, wasn't he, in learning to speak? speak? Yes. But hasn't he been a little bit slower in learning to read? Yes, definitely. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. He, he. Uh, somewhere I read that you learn to speak before you read. You learn to read before you write. And 
he was at 15 months, he was speaking very clearly and could remember amazing details that we told him still does. But even writing is very difficult for him now. He and Colleen, who is five, do about the same in their writing. So I've not pushed writing at all. I've, I've pushed reading a little bit to try to see if, if um, he could read. But he's, he's certainly made great strides in the last year, and he's almost reading big words. Um, so I just think taking it at a relaxed pace and trying to be, quote, sensitive to where, what they're understanding when you're looking at a page. Mm-hmm. And I remember reading in the Colfax book, C-O-L-F-A-X, they wrote a book about called Homeschooling for Excellence. Mm-hmm. This is a family that homeschooled four sons, all of whom went to Harvard. At least three of them went to Harvard. At mm-hmm. least three of them. Um, one of them did not learn to read until he was, what, nine, nine or, or ten? ten. Mm-hmm. Because he wasn't interested. Right. I, was, I thought that was rather fascinating. Uh-huh. And he, he got very interested in Indian archaeology. I think they were living in Oregon or Washington or something. Mm-hmm. And he wanted to go to the library to look up some things about Indian archaeology. And, of course, he couldn't read. Couldn't so read. at that point, he was motivated so highly that he learned to read in a few months, didn't mm-hmm. he? Mm-hmm. So that, yes. I thought that was fascinating. Now, one of the questions that people are always asking me about your homeschooling is, oh, are the schools in California that bad? Mm. (laughs) No, actually, we live right across the street from one of the top 20 elementary schools in the nation, according to secular standards. It's supposed to be a very good elementary school, and we live a quarter of a mile away from one of the top 20 high schools in the nation, public high schools. So my son is going to that one, but... I have no desire to put my children in the elementary schools, mainly because I think homeschooling um, is a wonderful way to be close to your children and teach them the values that you want them to have as solid foundation in their lives. Because in the schools, especially in the California schools, they are teaching a lot of really unnecessary and really bad stuff. For example, the occult and... uh, learning about sex education and all the kind of stuff that just is not necessary when you want to build in a solid foundation of, of Christian character and reading well and writing well and doing math well. I've always concentrated on the three R's as the most important thing that they learn through the elementary school. I think it's very important that people realize that your primary reason for doing it is not because the schools are so terrible, right. but because it is very important that children not be separated from their parents Mm -hmm. before the age of, what? At least eight or nine. Eight or nine years old. Because they're much more likely to absorb the values of their peers and to reject the values of their parents. And to me, that that ought to be a sufficient reason. Now, we've we've got about two minutes left. Can you tell us just a little bit about your daily schedule with homeschooling, what will be four children this coming? Yes, it'll be four. Four children. We've always done school from about 9 to 12, five days a week, and we've always had uh, Bible reading after breakfast, and then chores, and then start schoolwork. And there have been times when I've had a nursing baby when I couldn't get them all started doing schoolwork at the same time, so they were just responsible to go look at their lesson, the lesson manual, and find out what they were supposed to do first, and started on their own. Then I'm free uh, 
to concentrate on homeschooling for that those at least two and a half to three hours. And my children have done a lot of work on their own. I've really believed in trying to set aside a time daily to read out loud. That's been a struggle, but I, I really believe in it. I think it's so important for children to sit and listen and have their mother's full attention in reading something to them. Can you read something to all four of them that keeps their attention? Well, this year will be different because I've got the five-year-old and I don't have the 14-year-old. I probably will be able to find something. Usually a history lesson is what I would read out loud to them during school time. When I've visited in your home, Val, which I certainly love to do, I'm always amazed that the children seem to have learned to concentrate with many things going on because Mm -hmm. the phone doesn't stop ringing in a pastor's home, the doorbell might ring, the dog barks, the baby cries, uh, somebody can't do his lesson or he doesn't know where the crayons are, and they're just endless Mm -hmm. interruptions and distractions. And Mm -hmm. I thought, how are these children going to learn anything? (laughs) And yet the proof of the pudding is there. It really has been uh, a real eye-opener to me. I had a lot of misgivings about homeschooling, not only because of whether wondering whether or not the children would be properly educated, but also primarily thinking of poor Val and how is she, how's she going to bear all these burdens. Okay. But you seem to be doing what appears to me to be an excellent job. Thanks, Val. Well, that wraps up our very short series on planning for family life with Valerie Elliott Shepard, Elizabeth's daughter and special guest, and uh, the topic homeschooling. Well, as I mentioned, we're going to hear from Kathy Rieg. She's the president of the Elizabeth Elliott Foundation, the umbrella organization to try to gather Elizabeth's writings and other works and then to help uh, distribute it uh, to folks like you. Uh, Kathy has some thoughts about a parenting book. She and I wrote a couple of times. There was at one point that I was a little perplexed about being a parent and peer pressure of parenting and praying about it and feeling a little lonely in my views as a Christian mother. One day, out of the blue, the book, The Shaping of a Christian Family, came, and I did not order it. I have no idea where it came from, but it was the sweetest thing. It just arrived, and I read it, and it just assured me once again that I was doing what God had called me to do as a mother and not to be not to be perplexed and not to be um, so influenced by the world of motherhood that was trying to draw me. Kathy Rigg, president of the Elizabeth Elliott Foundation. Well, our time together is just about at an end, but I do have time to thank you for letting us come into your home, your office, wherever you are today, maybe out getting some exercise. Thanks for letting us be a part of that. And on behalf of the Elizabeth Elliott Foundation, in cooperation with the Bible Broadcasting Network, let me invite you to check out all the many resources, lectures, talks, devotionals, videos, Gateway to Joy programs, and more at elizabethelliott.com. ElizabethElliott.org is the place to go. And when you go to listen to this program, be sure to at some point leave us uh, a review. Maybe that will encourage somebody else to tune in as well. Thank you. 
Well, until next time, may God remind you daily you're loved with an everlasting love. And underneath are the everlasting arms.